Hello, everyone. It's awfully good to be able to join you today. Let's pray as we begin our time together. Heavenly Father, we're asking that you will uh, please touch our time together, touch uh, the words I will use, faulty and frail as they no doubt will be. And we're asking that you will use this time and my words to glorify yourself and to edify your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I have the happy privilege of bringing our ship into port, of concluding the journey we've been sailing this whole academic year. Back in September, President Tennant began our journey through the means of grace, and since then the entire Asbury community has been blessed by a whole series of speakers who were explaining and identifying and advocating for the use of the various means of grace, both individually and corporately. So today I want to work on two tasks. I want to emphasize uh, the key points in the trajectory of the means of grace. And I also want to bring us to the destination of our journey, the pier that we shall simply call love. Somehow our journey must end there if indeed God is love as the scripture declares. So let's double check first the trajectory through the means of grace, since it's all too easy for us to lose our bearings, even on this last leg of the voyage. We've got to be clear about the means of grace, since many of us have found them to be a problem, a hindrance, cause of confusion, maybe even giving birth to pride on the one hand or despair on the other. I want to divide the means of grace, the expression into its two parts, the means and of grace. And I want to begin with the second element, grace. To speak of grace means to grasp hold of one of the Bible's central themes, that God is a gracious God. In other words, that God is a giving God. Now as creator, surely God has been giving all along. God has been giving to all of us creatures life and breath and hope and joy and purpose and living, friends and family and livelihoods and pleasure, food, laughter, a thousand other delights that are from his hand. However bleak human life can be, and it certainly is at times, and however sinful we are, and we certainly are that, God has continually been pouring out fabulous gifts like these upon all creatures. I love the majestic way the King James Version translates Psalm 145, 15. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thy hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. How beautiful is that? But even more as Redeemer, God has richly poured out upon all who trust in him even more grace, grace upon grace. Grace in the form of a thousand other blessings, richer even than the ones we've just mentioned. Gifts like forgiveness and peace and the stirrings of eternal life, adoption into God's family, healing for our bodies and souls, ministry callings, ministry gifts, ministry fruitfulness, joy in serving other people, joy in belonging to the family of God, joy in finding success in our work, hope that we discover in the midst of pain and suffering even there, and on and on the list goes. To put it another way, Whenever we speak of grace, we're boldly subscribing to the conviction that God is the supreme giver. 
and that we ourselves are eternally and irreversibly dependent creatures. We are by nature receivers, and we always will be. And we get this, when we get this sorted out and hold fast to these two convictions that God is the giver and we are receivers, then most everything else falls in place. As James put it, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Or as Paul put it when he was chiding the Corinthians for their pride, he asked them, what do you have that you have not received? And there it is. God gives, we receive. We live and thrive, whether physically or spiritually, by divine giving, by divine grace. But as we grow in grace, and as our spiritual eyes begin to adjust to see reality more and more vividly, we will become painfully aware of our deficits, our fears and sins, our weaknesses and our ineffectiveness, blindness, confusion of all kinds, we will become ever more alert and attuned to this fact that we are desperately needy. We need God to pour out specific blessings, specific divine gifts to address the specific needs that stare us right now in the face. So how do we get God to give us what we so desperately need? Are there any means by which we can trigger God to send a heavier rain on this or that plot of dry ground in our lives or ministries? When we hear the question put that way, I'm sure that most of us just absolutely recoil. We hear it as a most perverse kind of thought. We will likely just sharply answer back and say, no, of course, we can't make God do anything. We can't pull the trigger to activate God's giving. God will do whatever God wants, however God wants, whenever God wants. That's what it means to be God. And any other viewpoint is downright blasphemous. Well, blasphemous indeed, unless the Bible tells a different story, and it does. And we will find that all the way through the Bible, God actually sets up what sound like contracts. He speaks to his people all the time. If you do this, then I will do that. Something strange for a an omnipotent, sovereign, transcendent God to say. But it's everywhere across the Old Testament, right into the New, and on up into the ministry and teaching of Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus was free to do whatever he wanted without anybody's advice or permission or cooperation. He could walk up and heal someone as if he wished. He could walk up and drive 2,000 demons out of someone, which he did, without asking for permission but just as commonly, and perhaps even more normally, Jesus actually asked people to do something as an implied condition for him to intervene in their lives. Fill those jars with water, he said, and I will do something amazing for this embarrassed wedding party. Move that stone, and I will do something amazing for you grieving sisters. Stretch out your hand, and I will do something amazing to reverse your paralysis or something really strange. Eat my flesh and drink my blood, and I will infuse my life into you. So how is this different from pure paganism? How's 
How's this different from the idea that we human beings can control God and get God to do things for us? Two distinctions make all the difference. First, in the Bible's view of these divine contracts offered to us, it is always God himself who has specified the actions he wants us to do. God has named those very triggers that will move God's heart and hand to act in our behalf. This is quite unlike the experimental approach of paganism, which tries out this trick, tries out that trick, experimenting its way forward to see if anything can happen uh, that would be beneficial to human beings. We approach God, however, in the very pathways that God has actually uh, revealed to us. And in approaching God in these ways that have been appointed, ordained, instituted, mapped out, revealed, given to us, we are humbly accepting God's own guidance. We are obeying God's commands and trusting that God will indeed fulfill his promise to respond to us as we walk and wait in the pathways he has given. The Lord says, do these things that I have specified and I will do amazing things for you. Of course, we need to add the asterisk, in my own time, he would say, and in my own way. The second distinction is this. The Bible makes it clear that our actions themselves, these means of grace, these divinely instituted pathways, like whether we have in mind prayer or fasting or studying the scripture, receiving the Lord's Supper, or gathering together in Jesus' name, these actions have absolutely no power or merit in themselves. Mr. Wesley compared them in his sermon on the means of grace to dry leaves. That changed my life. Take dry leaves, grip them in your hand, and they will turn to dust. And so while paganism is, is gripping onto rites and rituals themselves, believing that the correct actions correctly performed will guarantee divine results, we know that our practices, our disciplines, our performances of these duties have no power at all in themselves. We continually put our whole trust in God alone and in God's scripturally published promises to meet us as we walk in the means that he himself has provided. I love the story of Naaman, the Syrian general who was a leper. He called out to God through a series of incidents, getting in touch with the prophet Elisha, who gave him instructions for doing what would trigger God's healing power. Elisha said, go and wash in the Jordan River, dipping seven times in that muddy water. Naaman would never have proposed such a thing. He had other ideas about how to affect his own cure. How odd this, pr this proposal is. How counterintuitive is this cure? Even revolting, I'm sure they were, to a man of his stature. But finally, he humbled his heart and obediently did what God had commanded, trusting that God would fulfill his promise to meet his need. And so the need was met. You know how wonderful it is that we are not left to wonder and wander, to guess or grope about 
in our trial and error with only a faint hope of receiving divine help and blessing. God has not said, seek me in darkness, but he has said, this is the way, walk in it. And so we live in great confidence, knowing that the God who cannot lie has sworn to meet and bless us as we walk toward him in the means of grace he himself has given to us. But now we need to revisit this matter of grace itself and the actual content of God's generosity. I've spoken vaguely about God's blessings in the plural, and yes, God does give us many things, and he gives us all sorts of things. This is what good fathers love doing, is giving their children wonderful gifts. But as we mature spiritually, we will discover that above and beyond all the blessings and benefits God gives, one supreme gift rises above them all. It is God's gift of himself. It is God's very presence realized and known in our lives. We remember that to the ancient tribe of Levi, God said, no, I'm not going to give you land, however wonderful and valuable that might be. I am giving you myself. I am your inheritance. Likewise, Moses knew that God's very presence was the real prize. Though God had offered an angel to accompany Israel into the promised land to guarantee their safety and prosperity, Moses turned down the offer of an angel, however attractive that was, in favor of something far better. Moses said back to God, unless you go with us, we will not go up in the land. Wesley makes this same point near the end of the sermon that I've already mentioned when giving his final advice about practicing the means of grace. He says simply this, seek God alone. Nothing short of God can satisfy your soul. But the story of scripture, as it rolls forward and unfolds, teaches us something about God that actually is peculiar and wonderful in the Christian understanding of God. We learn that God has had an inner craving all along to give to humanity something that God has cherished from time immemorial above everything else. And of course, this is the instinct that all real lovers have. We want to give to our beloved what we cherish most. And so we learn that at the appointed time, God gave to the world his own greatest treasure, the eternal son, who had been from all eternity resting in the Father's bosom. And so as we seek God alone, we discover that fellowship with the Father leads us into a focused fellowship with the Son, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. And the story keeps moving forward. As we seek God alone, we then learn that the Father and the Son have conspired together to give an even more refined, precious, and intimate gift to all fervent seekers, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is no impersonal power, no strange ghost, but the third member of the Holy Trinity, who uh, perhaps as Augustine has suggested, is the very bond of love between the Father and the Son. So that their combined gift would become the master distributor of all divine gifts and blessings. But is there another step to go? If we keep seeking God alone, yes, 
uh, we might discover that the spirit now has a gift to give, some gem of unspeakable value that may capture like nothing else can the very essence and character and purpose of the triune God. Is there such a gift? I think that John Wesley, in his careful and synthetic reading of scripture, has found the answer and has repeated it emphatically and clearly with a resounding yes, and has named that gift to be nothing other than love. As he urges in one of his passages in the plain account of perfection, he writes in this way, love is the highest gift of God. Humble, gentle, patient love, that all visions, revelations, or manifestations, whatever, are but little things compared to love, and that all other gifts are either the same with or infinitely inferior to love. Therefore, you should be thoroughly aware of this. The heaven of heavens is love. There is nothing higher in religion. There is, in effect, nothing else. If you look for anything but more love, you were looking wide of the mark. You're getting out of the royal way. And when you were asking others, have you received this or that blessing? If you mean anything but more love, you mean wrong. You're leading them out of the way and putting them on a false scent. Settle it in your heart then, that from the moment God has saved you from all sin, you are to aim at nothing more but that love described in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. You can go no higher than this, Wesley says, till you are carried into Abram's bosom. Amazing. And of course, Wesley being an excellent reader of scripture, there are numbers of reasons why seeking love should be our primary quest and zeal. I give you three right here. In seeking love, we are seeking God's very essence. For as we read in 1 John, God is love. And as Wesley put it, love is God's darling, his reigning attribute, shedding an amiable glory on all his other perfections. So think of it. To become filled with God's love is to become like God in the highest sense possible for us mortals, whether in time or across eternity. Second, in seeking to be filled with love, we are seeking that which will govern and enliven all other gifts. From 1 Corinthians 13, we learn that if love does not fill our hearts, then the spiritual gifts and all the gifts of ministry will stagger and slump in weakness at best or at worst, will putrefy into a slimy mass of selfish, toxic fumes. But when love does fill our hearts, our gifts become purified and aligned for genuine service and energized to accomplish the mighty labor of love in effective life-giving service. Third, why seek love? In seeking love, in seeking to be filled with love, we are seeking the fountain of all other virtues, the fountain of all holiness. Wesley understood, as have many exegetes and saints through the centuries, that the fruit of the Spirit described in Galatians 5 is not a cluster of nine individual fruits, as if each one were a separate agendum to be pursued. No, the fruit of the Spirit is love. All the following virtues, are merely describing the natural rivulets flowing out of love 
just as 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 teach us. And so if my heart is filled with love, then I shall be kind and good and patient and so on. Since the infilling of love displaces all that is unlike itself, specifically the flesh and all its works, then the infusion of love creates a holy heart. As Wesley put it, love is the sum of Christian sanctification. It is the one kind of holiness there is. Let me summarize to this point. I've described the means of grace as those practices, habits, rites, and disciplines that God himself has given to us, clearly marking out a pathway for us to follow, through which, when we walk and wait in them patiently and obediently, God has promised to give us grace, that is, all manner of divine gifts. Then I've laid out a more refined accounting of those gifts, culminating in God's gift of, him, of, of his very self, uh, who then, the Trinitarian triune God, who then along longs to fill us with their choicest gift, love. All the means of grace then, when we practice them in purity and aim at their loftiest goal are aimed at love. Let us seek to be filled with love above all else. But what realistic hope is there for being truly filled with God's love? None. I want to say that again. There is no realistic hope of ever experiencing such a magnificent filling. Why? Because it's not realistic. And by realistic, I have in mind whatever most of us would judge to be normal or typical or reasonable according to the wisdom of people we judge to be sane and rational and mature. And yet, there is hope for such a filling. Turn with me to Ephesians 3 and recall our e earlier reading of this wonderful prayer of Paul. Uh, many people view this prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19 as being the loftiest prayer in scripture, aside, of course, from our Lord's prayers. Here we find the apostle in all of his apostolic wisdom and authority, dropping to his knees and asking the Father to give the very highest divine gifts to his readers, who, it is important to note, were already believers, already in Christ, already seated in heavenly places, already raised to new life through their fusion with the resurrected Christ. What will he ask for these well-established believers? Well, if we read through uh, these verses of the prayer, we find that first he asks that they be inwardly strengthened. Then he asks that Christ would somehow dwell even more deeply and permanently in their hearts than he already does. But then the prayer ascends even more sharply towards its pinnacle. As Paul asks that they may be able to comprehend something that is absolutely incomprehensible, and that is, the love of God is manifested in Christ, which in turn brings the apostle to this most glorious prize at the absolute apex of his prayer. And that is that we be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. 
put differently, to be filled with what fills God. But what is that? Well, this is not a place to lay out a lengthy exegetical argument, but I find myself convinced by those who have concluded that what fills God can be nothing other than love. Love fills God, and it seems to radiate infinitely in all directions. And Paul dares to pray that this unbounded divine love would absolutely, completely, and decisively fill believers, no doubt in a way that would eclipse their initial infusion with God's love at justification, as well as any other such filling along the way. Astounding. And Paul must have been aware that this prayer of his was pushing the limits of propriety, pushing against the borders of what was impossible, tempting us, his readers, to back away from its height, to catch our breath and to settle for something, well, more realistic, a little more normal, a little more acceptable, a little more reasonable. But the apostle will not back down, will not moderate his request, and so he caps off his prayer with a solemn doxology designed to strengthen our resolve as we join the apostle in our asking for this. Here's this doxology, now to him who by the power at work in us is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. The doxology says it all. For believers to become utterly filled with God's love will require nothing short of the full exercise of God's power. But should this come about, God's glory will glow all the more brightly for all to see. Friends, as we diligently practice the means of grace, let us not forget God. And as we look to God alone in obedient faith, let us long for the infusion of love, God's highest gift. And then the pier of love on which we have landed will not be a terminus. It won't be the end of a journey. Uh, but from that pier will open up a new whole continent before us where our hearts will be pure, our service even more effective, and the aroma emanating from us will be the aroma of God's own eternal life. May God bless us as we seek him in the means of grace.